15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again, and thank you for joining us on the podcast known as Space Nuts. My name is Andrew Dunkley, I'm your host, and with me as always, Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. And look, I do like your newly badged, newly minted style voice. Yes, it's brilliant, isn't it? (laughs) Um, As you are aware, but many of our overseas listeners would not be aware, um, we've just come through or is still going through one of the worst flu seasons in history in uh, in this country in fact um, in my state new south wales uh, they recorded the worst august on record for the flu and that was only that only surpassed the worst july on record which was the same year so 2017 has been a dreadful season i thought i got through it we're in spring now we're getting temperatures up towards 30 degrees centigrade and i thought yes I beat it. I got through without the flu, and then bang, it hit me. And it, it is relentless. It is unbelievable. And anyway. it's so, <clears throat> so virulent that um, even though I am separated from you by four hundred kilometres at the moment, I'm worried about catching it from you. You're taking a big risk. Mm, <laughs> I, you think are. I am too. <laughs> yeah, you could get the digital flu. <laughs> Excuse me. I, there might be occasional cough, coughing. So uh, we're going to press on though. Uh, So, Fred, today we're going to talk about um, the U.S. Vice President's announcement that uh, we're going to go back to the moon. Hello. And uh, (laughs) uh, the other uh, thing that's uh, in the news at the moment, this is really fascinating, uh, with uh, the detection of Freon 40 in space by the ALMA and uh, Rosetta probes, or Rosetta probe and the ALMA uh, observatory. Um, Freon 40, not to be confused with 40... Klingons. No, that doesn't work. Anyway, we'll keep going. <laughs> I'm really struggling here. And then, um, then we're going to finish up with a story about a, a Japanese amateur astronomer who has been posthumously recognised for her work and compared to Galileo in some respects. So that uh, is very fascinating. But first up, Fred, and I think you can do most of the talking. I'll just sit here and, and get into my lem sip. Uh, yes, that's right. <laughs> when are we going back to the moon? Well, soon, apparently. Um, And this is a really interesting piece of of news that's come uh, actually out of a a visit uh, by the US Vice President, Mike Pence, to a body known as the National Space Council. This is a, uh, you know, it's an advisory body, uh, which is very interesting because it hasn't actually met (laughs) for... Not for a fortnight or anything like that. It hasn't met for 25 years. Um, so quarter of a century ago, uh, the last time the National Space Council met, uh, which is uh, very interesting. But uh, it's been reconvened. And the, the, the speech that Mike Pence made to them really signifies a change of direction uh, in NASA's um, you know, NASA's mandate and their um, mode of exploration with the change of administration in the USA, because uh, the Obama administration was pretty negative about um, flights to the moon. Um, in fact, <laughs> President Obama was uh, w- was quoted in a recent news report as having said, we've been there, and that that's kind of it, really, yeah. um, and and really set the um, you know set the agenda for sending humans to Mars to orbit Mars and then 
return them safely to Earth by the mid-2030s with the possibility then of, of human exploration of Mars. And it was actually the, the Obama administration that approved the what, what we call the SLS, the Space Launch System, which is a kind of back-to-Apollo-era style, uh, style um, launch vehicle compared with, with the Space Shuttle, which, of course, was retired. Uh, and an Apollo-style deep space capsule called Orion, very much the same sort of shape uh, as the Apollo capsule, but bigger. Um, I think it to. Uh, I think the idea is it can hold up to seven astronauts. Now all that is still on the you know on the agenda. Uh, NASA are certainly still working on the SLS and on Orion. But the new um, you know the the, the new um, administration is very keen on landing American astronauts again back on the moon and using it as a kind of trial base for um, you know for for, for space on different worlds because that's something you need to get used to mm. but also in, in a way to provide uh, what you might call a, a gateway and in fact they are calling it the gateway the deep space gateway uh, which NASA is now talking about uh, as, as a possibility to build some kind of a, a lunar space station um, that would that would actually allow astronauts to, to you know to train uh, for, for walking on other worlds to tr to use their equipment to test all that out uh, on in an environment which is a lot more um, I suppose a lot more Mars like than than being in the International Space Station which is currently where astronauts tra train for all these things so this is really very very interesting um, and there was a statement issued actually by NASA's acting administrator because there is a new administrator going to be uh, appointed. We don't know who that will be yet. But the acting administrator, Robert Lightfoot, uh, last week issued a statement that said, uh, NASA has been directed to develop a plan for an innovative and sustainable program of exploration with commercial and international partners mm. to enable human expansion across the solar system, returning humans to the moon for long-term exploration and utilization, followed by human missions to Mars and other destinations. So it's very firmly back on the agenda. I mean, it's extremely exciting that this uh, sort of thing is now happening. And I um, think the next thing we see, Andrew, will be the appointment of an administrator for NASA, and that person will set the agenda for the way these things are achieved over the next few years. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I actually read an article the other day about um, maybe putting... Um, habitats on places like the moon and they were talking about maybe setting them up in lava tubes because they've discovered that the moon yeah, has lava right. tubes and mars has Indeed. lava tubes and some of them are quite enormous and would create a natural barrier for um um radiation, for radiation. yeah yes that's right so that's correct that's really interesting uh i was i was wondering about when you said that we we'd fly to mars do a lap and come back um, it's a long way to go not to land. Isn't it? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but is that definitely the, the, the thinking? At well, the that, was the, that, no, that was the thinking of the previous administration, Andrew. Um, and, uh, and, and a very cautious, risk-averse um, policy. And, and I absolutely understand that. You know, things have, have changed, certainly in terms of our, uh, our <laughs> cheerfulness at taking risks uh, since the Apollo era. I think that people were, were much less risk averse in the Apollo era than they are now. Mm. And so um, and there was, of course, that strong political imperative at that time. 
Uh, but um, uh, I think um, you, you're quite right. Uh, it, it's a long way to go just to come back again. On the other hand, the really dangerous part of a mission like that will be the landing and getting yep. back off the Martian surface. So you can understand that that might still be on the agenda. And yep. um, in, in many ways, I hope it would be. It's what happened in the case of the moon. If you remember, Apollo 8 flew around the moon, uh, sent back those marvelous pictures of Earthrise uh, before the Apollo landings later the following year. Mm, yeah. All right, more to come on the moon and beyond. And you're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and team with a go. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, we're going to look at uh, the discovery of Freon 40 in space. I won't pretend to know what Freon 40 is or where you'd find it, but I'm guessing it's not on a supermarket shelf. But then again, it could be. Uh, but the ALMA Observatory and the Rosetta uh, probe have both found this stuff. What is Freon 40? <laughs> well, look, I'm not really that hot a chemist, I have to say, Andrew, but um, I believe Freon 40 is an alternative name for a chemical compound with the, uh, with the chemical formula CH3Cl. And of course, you'll immediately re recognize that as uh, methyl chloride or chloromethane, which is another name for it. And I've got a feeling that I encountered this stuff as a solvent in the years when I used to be working in the fiber optics lab at the UK Schmidt Telescope. Uh, a very, very um, effective solvent, which I was uh, I used for several years until somebody told me it is highly carcinogenic ah. uh, and uh, better left alone. So I promptly left it alone. So you shoved it, shoved it in a cupboard with your asbestos collection. Yes, that's right. Mm. Something like that. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, as you said, this compound uh, has been detected by ALMA, which is the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, at, uh, an array of radio telescopes in the Atacama Desert in Chile. Uh, it's been found in the atmosphere uh, or the, the gas cloud around an infant star. So this newly formed star has a cloud around it from basically, which is the cocoon within which it's formed, which contains Freon 40, uh, among other things. Uh, but it's also been found in a totally independent mission, the European uh, Space Agency's Rosetta mission, which you and I talked about endlessly a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, the spacecraft that was in orbit around the comet Churyumov-Gerasimenko uh, also detected Freon 40 in the gas cloud around the comet. And so that uh, is a fairly strong indicator that this stuff is around in space, that it's, um, you know, it forms part of the raw material of solar systems uh, from the ALMA detection and indeed also from the, the Rosetta detection because we believe that comets like Churyumov-Gerasimenko or 67P as we tended to call it, uh, we believe that those comets are actually uh, samples of the raw material from which the solar system formed. So that's uh, the new observation. But why is this such big news? It is because Freon 40 uh, is part of a class of compounds called organo organohalogens. And uh, on Earth, uh, organohalogens are basically created by biological processes or some biological processes. Um, in fact, in uh, ESO, ESO's press release, it says they're created in organisms ranging from humans to fungi, as well as by industrial processes such as the production of dyes and medical drugs. So it's, it, it's the fact that it's, crea it's created by 
um, you know, by life processes that has excited astrobiologists who are the people who look at the possibility of life beyond the Earth and want to study whether living organisms can exist out there and, and more especially to find them. Um, so, so this discovery is actually a blow to astrobiologists because we have always thought that when the time comes and it's not too far down the track for big new telescopes to be able to analyze the atmospheres of uh, planets of other stars, uh, when that time comes, one of the things that people were going to look for uh, as a, a marker of biological processes was Freon 40. Uh, but now we know that it's not actually guaranteed a biomarker. It mm. can be uh, it can be in the gas cloud from which a planet formed. Uh, there's a very nice quote, actually, within the um, press release that uh, the European uh, Southern Observatory have put out on this, uh, which reads, um, this suggests that astronomers may have had things around the wrong way. Rather than indicating the presence of existing life, organohalogens like Freon 40 may be an important element in the little understood chemistry involved in the origin of life. In other words, you know, Freon 40 might be there before life starts. Yeah. Um, and so it's, uh, it, it means that we can't rely on this particular class of chemicals as revealing life on the planets of other stars. And in fact, I was talking last week to a colleague at the University of Southern Queensland, John T. Horner, who's an astrobiologist. And he said, we really are struggling to find things that would be, um, you know, irrefutable markers of life processes. Uh, one of the things that is often touted as being an indicator of life in the atmosphere of a planet is the presence of oxygen, mm. because oxygen First of all, it's highly reactive, so it has to be being constant, re constantly replenished. But we know that it's produced by, um, you know, by living organisms on Earth. But there are other processes that could cause oxygen as well. Uh, Jonty's comment was, we need to look for oxygen and methane in, in equilibrium, which we do find on Earth. And that is, at the moment, the best biomarker we've got. But things like Freon 40, sadly, we've had to throw out of the window. Yeah, that's interesting because, um, it, it, yeah, it changes the whole... Um spectrum of, of what they're looking at um, is there a possibility that perhaps they'll be able to find other markers aside from oxygen and methane uh, that might help them you know find places where life may exist yeah uh, it's a very very active field of study is this Andrew so you you know you put your finger on exactly what's happening in the world of astrobiology, that people are looking for exactly these sorts of things. Um, one of the things we were excited about a few years ago was something called the vegetation red edge, which is a feature in the what we call the infrared spectrum of vegetation. Um, uh, so if you've got living vegetation, it causes this particular profile in the reflected light coming from it. It's actually caused by chlorophyll, uh, you know, the, the green yeah. uh, colouring in vegetation. But um, that now is also not seen as a guaranteed biomarker. We've What we do is we put these things up and then test them out. And uh, maybe at the end of the day, there will be some that stand the test of, of time and are genuine biomarkers, things that are, can only be produced by bio, biological processes. And they're clearly the things to go off and look for. Yes, indeed. All right. Uh, but it just takes us that one step closer, perhaps, to, uh, to finding life. We'll be able to point in the sky and say, look at that. That's, yes, but there's, there's something there. There's something there, but it won't be free on 40. No, it won't be. Mm. <laughs> All right, you're listening to Space Nuts. My name's Andrew Dunkley, and he's Fred Watson. Three, two, one. 
Space Nuts. Well, not too many people would be unaware of the name Galileo and all his achievements. But there is another name that you may not be aware of, uh, and she is from Japan. Her name is Hisako Koyama, and she is being recognised for her work as, uh, in a- uh, amateur astronomy, and some of her works are even being compared to that of Galileo in some respects, Fred. This is amazing. Isn't this a lovely story, Andrew? And it's one that surfaced in the news because uh, this year, 2017, we are commemorating the 20th anniversary of the death of this remarkable Japanese woman, as you said, Hisako Koyama, Um, somebody who was born in Tokyo in 1916, uh, but wound up as an expert in the sun and solar astronomy, solar phenomena. Um, a a topic that at the moment is very much a hot topic and understanding the way the sun works Mm. is one of the great scientific quests of our time. The the reason why she's being compared with Galileo is uh, because of her work on the sun. And of course, Galileo was actually one of the pioneering observers of the sun. It's probably why he went blind, because he kept looking through his newly invented telescope at the sun uh, to look at sunspots. It's it's also, um, just as an aside, one of the reasons why he wound up in front of the Inquisition, uh, because he fell out with uh, another solar observer called Christoph Scheiner. Um, and uh, Galileo maintained that these spots were actually blemishes on the surface of the sun. And he was quite right in that regard. Yeah. They're regions of, of cooler temperature. Whereas Shiner followed the doctrine of the church. This is back in 1618 or 1619, I think. Shiner followed the doctrine of the church, which said, said that the sun was perfect. Heavenly bodies were all perfect. So these spots on it could not be uh, things on the sun. They were obviously planets in between ourselves and the sun, well, which is... I'll, I'll bet you Galileo wanted to give him a shiner. <laughs> yeah, I think he did too, yeah. Oh, very good. You see, I've, you still got it. It. <laughs> I've still got it. I've still got it. I've got a lot of things at the moment. <laughs> yeah, no. uh, You'll have to get flu more often, Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, uh, so, yeah, so that, that, that caused the schism between... Uh, oh, sorry, the schism between uh, Galileo and, and the church, or it was one of the reasons for it. Um, so sunspots were played a big part in in Galileo's life. Actually, um, we usually attribute Galileo as being the first person to note sunspots in Mm. the early 1600s. 1610 was when he was pointing his telescope at them. But there are records um, from England, actually, that show in medieval texts pictures of the sun with uh, black spots black on spots, it, yes. seen, seen with the naked eye. I, I think there's one that, that goes back to the, the 1400s. It's yeah. quite extraordinary. Anyway, we can certainly associate Galileo with sunspots. And uh, now we know because um, uh, an author has actually celebrated the work of Hisako Koyama, we now know that she also is very much associated with, with sunspots. So briefly, the, the story is that... Um, she she grew up uh, in she was born in Tokyo um, and basically as a as a young woman uh, got interested in uh, astronomy and making sketches of the sun and made her first sketch of a sunspot in 1944. The telescope was actually a present from her father um, and sent the result into the what was then the Japanese Oriental Astronomical Association, uh, which was uh, the work, her work was re- received with enthusiasm and she was sort of mentored by the then president of the association. Uh, and after a couple of years, she got a job 
at uh, basically a national or a scientific institution. It's now the National Museum of Nature and Science in Tokyo, and stayed there until she retired at the age of 65 in 1981. So that's a pretty long shot. It is. Um, and she compiled a record of more than 8,000 sunspots. Uh, remarkable stuff. Um, and those records are actually today, uh, you, you know, they're part of the kind of canon of knowledge that we have about the sun. They they are probably digitized. I'm not sure whether they are, but the the records are are, are actually um, uh, used in by uh, sunspot researchers uh, as part of the archive of data that we build uh, we build our knowledge on. So that. 400 years of sunspot observations since Galileo had a very significant contribution uh, from Hisako Koyama with her, her um, 8,000 sunspots. So what a striking woman. Um, yeah. uh, she was described in, the, in, in an article that's published in the journal Space Weather, which of course is all about solar activity, uh, um, by Dolores Nip. She's written this article. Uh, she describes uh, uh, Hisako Koyama as a most unusual woman of her time who bridged the amateur and professional world, which is a great tribute. Um, it makes you wonder, Andrew, just how many other unrecognized heroes and heroines of astronomy, uh, astronomy there, there are throughout the world who, who we have yet to find out about. I was delighted to read this story, and uh, I think it's, uh, it's a great thing to talk about. Certainly is, and, and you're right about her um, being an unusual case because um, she was a Japanese woman uh, at a time when um, imperialism ruled. Um, the country was run by an emperor when she was born and yes, right. um, and she started making her notes and doing her work during the height of the Second World War, uh, which is quite odd. I, I would have thought that they would have been pouring all their resources into the fight. Um, yes. And astronomy or um, studying the, the sun would have, um, would have been put on the back burner. Very much so. Um, and yet um, this young woman managed to, you know, against all the odds, succeed. And uh, in spite of the fact that uh, it, it, at that time um, it was almost impossible for girls of any nationality to get jobs in science. And yet she succeeded in doing that. Uh, and, and as you said, in, in circumstances that, well, probably, uh, you know, it will be very hard to imagine today. So good honour and what a great story. Indeed. And you ready for this? A glowing tribute to the land of the rising sun. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> boom, boom. <laughs> thank you, Fred, as always. It's a great pleasure, Andrew. And thank you for struggling through with your, uh, with your little infirmity. And I hope you get better very soon. Oh, me too. Thank you so much. Uh, that's Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. And between he and I, we are the space nuts. And so are you, I guess. I mean, anybody who listens has got to be nutty. And uh, don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Send us your questions. We didn't get to listen to questions this week, but we'll try and do a couple next week. And, uh, yeah, stay in touch. We love to hear from you, even if you just want to make a comment. Uh, until next time, thank you for listening to Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.